Welcome to a special edition of ARCS Chat. My name is Robin Bauer-Kilgo. I'm one of your ARCS Chat hosts. Just a couple of super quick notes before we start. As with all these ARCS Chats, there is a slight delay. So if you want to participate along, put questions in the chat box, please feel free. There might be a delay in the answering. Um, and a couple of big ARCS announcements we wanted to let everyone know. We have a special section of our website. If you go on to arcsinfo.org, there will be a section called COVID-19 sources. We've been collecting resources that might be helpful to some of our fellow institutions. We're also working alongside CSAM and a couple other groups to make sure that all of our sources are kind of looking the same. So heads up on that. And as a special treat for the next couple of weeks until this kind of calms down, um, all of our conference videos are accessible to anyone who comes across our website. So if you want to see some of the sessions that happened in 2019, you have some development time you want to take up, go to our website, find the link, and you can access them. And without further delay, I'm going to hand the mic off to John Robinette. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome uh, to this um, extra bonus episode of the ARCS Chat. Uh, normally, we're here with Amanda Robinson, who couldn't be with us because her um, she's busy putting out fires at her job, as I'm sure we're all doing these days, but uh, in her absence, we have uh, a good portion of the ARCS board here. I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce everybody. Uh, we have Samantha Forsco, and where are you coming from? Hi. Um, as John said, my name is Samantha Forsco. I am currently the Preservation Specialist at the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts. I'm located in Philadelphia. I'm actually about to leave for a new job, though, which we can discuss transitioning a job during the pandemic. Um, I will be the director of collections at the Art Institute of Chicago um, within the next month. Congrats. Thank you. Then there's Tony Kaiser. Hi. Um, I'm in New Orleans. I'm the assistant director for collections at the National World War II Museum. She is also the vice president of the ARCS. And then we have Danielle Bennett. Hello, I'm Danielle Bennett. I am head of collections management at the Freer and Sackler Galleries at the Smithsonian. I'm also president of ARCS. And Melissa B. B. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Melissa Beckhofer, and I'm the director of integrative collections at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Fantastic. Shannon White. Uh, hello, everyone. Shannon White, and I'm the Director of Collections for the Beckler Museum of Modern Art in Charlotte, North Carolina. Sweet. Elise Lecomte. Hi, I'm Elise Lecomte. I'm Registrar and Coordinator for Museum Health and Safety at the Florida Museum of Natural History in Gainesville. And as you can probably see, I'm in my office. So I can talk about that later. <laughs> I have to be in my office. We also have John Simmons. Hello there. I'm a consultant based in central Pennsylvania, and I am also the associate curator of collections of the Earth and Mineral Sciences Museum and Art Gallery at Penn State University. And finally, Mark Ryan. Hello, I'm the assistant director for collections and exhibitions at the Mildred Lane Kemper Art Museum in Washington University, and I'm in St. Louis. Fantastic. Well, uh, given the circumstances uh, and uh, of, of, of us discussing tonight, uh, of course, with the uh, pandemic going on around the world and everybody, you know, basically working from home, if, if at all possible, um, I want to start out with our resident uh, disaster expert, Samantha. Um, how, how could we have prepared for this? I mean, is, is this something that we should have a plan for? I mean, I guess that's obvious, but what, what is that? What does the preparedness look like for this? Yeah, so that's, you know, I work a lot with emergency planning with institutions and by and large, the thing that we have been planning for has been like water disasters or an earthquake or something like that. And this public health disaster is not something that I think a lot uh, has crossed a lot of our minds and something I've been seeing that I think we are sorely missing in the museum um, community is a continuity of operations plan or a COOP plan. Um, it's kind of figuring out how we're going to be doing this work from home, uh, work remotely sort of work. And it just, it, it is painfully obvious that we are as a, as a field kind of lacking in that. I know a couple of you guys have some experience with some COOP planning um, 
Robin's husband is in the military, I believe. So he has lots of experience with that, but yeah, um, we have real exciting dinner conversations sometimes over continuity <laughs> operations and emergency planning. Cause I have that background as well, but yeah, he and I were talking just about how a lot of these places we don't, people are either don't have them or have them and they're trying to change them midstream. And that's been like, you can't, it's really hard to do that. So that's been kind of like a big topic for us. Can you give us a really brief definition of a continuity plan? Go for it, Samantha. Um, I don't know if I can do a brief definition. (laughs) Continuity of operations is is kind of what it sounds like, I guess, in in some ways. How are you going to um, continue on with these sort of essential functions of your institution if you are not able to get to the institution. And those essential functions might be sort of different, like, you know, museums, exhibitions might be what you think of as an essential function, but I'm talking more about like payroll and, um, you know, making sure your building, even if no one's there, making sure your building is still upright um, and, and those sorts of plans as opposed to essential functions that we normally think of uh, the the word essential as we've all been what is an essential worker right we've all been having those conversations so what are the essential functions of the museum or the institution and that's a lot of conversations that Robin was mentioning that people are having right now and now is not the time to be having those conversations um mm-hmm. so when when we're on the other side of this we will take all the lessons and make our coop plans um a little bit more robust or exist in the first place in many cases. Um, so I can, oh, go ahead, John. No, no, go ahead. Well, so I was going to say that, you know, one of the things about um, being in an institution that went through Hurricane Katrina and learning a lot about continuity of operations, although that's not what we were calling it in 2005, is that in some ways, although we have been preparing for it in the sense of what happens if we have a giant hurricane again, um, We've actually been able to adapt what we had already planned to do for a big hurricane into this. I think the difference is that when we have a big hurricane, we don't really expect a lot of people to work from home. So the amount of laptops that we had that we were able to issue to staff who needed a laptop, the amount of VPN access that we have into our system so that people can work remotely, like that was a little bit of a different change a step that we had to really figure out mid stride in asking a lot of people to work from home. But in some ways, having been through the, we don't have anybody's private email addresses. We don't, you know, when your server goes down, like we learned a lot of lessons in Katrina that I think have actually come to service kind of well in this instance, um, because we have stayed on top of it in thinking about what would happen if we had another hurricane like that. And I think we've, so far, I think we've adapted pretty well in like how we've been able to continue operations and, and the ways that we've decided to ask people to work from home and, and um, communicate with their supervisors and with their own, with people who supervise and all that. Since the military has come up, it might be worthwhile recalling that statement attributed to Eisenhower that plans are worthless but planning is uh, extremely important. And I think that's true because if you are used to planning, if you engage in planning and renewing your plans regularly, you're going to be far more adaptable when these when the situation comes. And no matter how good your plans are, your disaster isn't likely to fit the exact plan that you have. But going through the planning process will get you thinking about how, that, how you are going to respond. And I think if you have planned before, as Tony's pointed out, they had this experience with Katrina, you've been able to adapt that to other kinds of disasters. So I think that's worth remembering that the, the plan itself may not be the greatest plan in the world, but the planning process could be extraordinarily useful when a disaster comes. Well, and the thing that I've, we were finding interesting is, you know, when you make these disaster plans, you always go like, what's your, what's your threat that's going to happen, right? And obviously here in the Southeast, I'm in the Florida Keys, we're always like hurricanes, hurricanes, hurricanes. If you would have told me pandemic, I would have been like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. that was like the <laughs> lowest one on the totem pole. But I do think it's interesting that the hurricane plans are pretty good. So I think it'll be interesting to see as we, when we come out of this, how we can look at those plans and adapt them to kind of make for this type of situation. Because a lot of you people know, so, have that issue with the VPN and the access. So. Yeah. So it was interesting for us because, you know, so we closed to the public on March 13th, I think, or March 14th, somewhere in there. And that first week, they were like, staff should work from home, but we'll be open to staff, you know, if you need to come in. And so I went in that I was out of town when we actually closed. And so when I came back in, I worked that whole first week, just like 
the first part of the week, just like download data, get worksheets for people to clean, figure out files that you can transfer that people can annotate oral histories from home. And, you know, like just how can I keep my people busy at home to sort of ensure that they're going to continue to get paid and we can show progress in what we're working on. And then on Wednesday, they're like, nope, closing the staff, get ready, enact hurricane protocols. And you're like, well, that's a totally different set of work. That's like, you know, covering with plastic and uh, being out of gallery, you know, and nothing on countertops and all your carts are clear. And you're like, huh? <laughs> somebody help me. <laughs> like, I, can't, I can't do both things. Right. So, but it's, it's worked really well so far, two days in to, um, to it. I feel really confident and safe about our collections and how we left everything, you know, based on our hurricane protocol and, you know, the minimal amount of staff that are there. We do have security and uh, basic engineering staff still in place. So the good thing is, is I don't really worry about the power going out and I don't really worry about like the roof getting ripped off. So those are bonuses for the hurricane protocol. <laughs> Although keep in mind there was just an earthquake that hit Utah museums. So <laughs> sometimes things don't come one at a time, unfortunately. Yeah. Plague of, loca- Plague of locusts next. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's, gonna, it's like what the next one on the order is. I'd like to make a comment about the fact that, you know, my museum is embedded in a university and they've been providing all of this information for us to work at home. However, it's all broken. It's like you said, with the laptops, I have a new laptop and I can't even get into the VPN because we have two factor authentication or sign in and it won't allow me to put in my second type Mm -hmm. of sign in. So I can't access my files from home. So I, you know, I'm trying to copy them onto my flash drives and like you did, and we can, no volunteers or interns are allowed to come in. So I've had, had to come up with a whole new plan for my intern. <clears throat> um, how can we do Zoom meetings? Do we turn it into a class? She can't do any work. Um, my volunteer and I have been talking and I'm actually um, – sent her some of our database files and I'm going to take some of the paper files to her home and she's going to do work at home because she's going crazy too. We're all going stir crazy. So it's been a real issue. For anyone who wants to ask questions of, uh, of the panel here, uh, just sign into your Google account, same way that you sign into your Gmail account or whatever. And, uh, and feel free to chat us. I'm, I'm following along on uh, YouTube so I can see any of the questions. So if you do have any, um, you know, please, please write us and uh, feel free to contribute. Um, so one of the, the interesting things about this, this scenario is that it's kind of, uh, as instead of being a direct threat to collections care, it's been sort of an indirect threat by being a threat to the staff, which has, uh, caused everybody to assume different roles and different protocols. And uh, I'd, I'd love to talk a, a little bit about that since uh, it seems like, uh, for example, Danielle, you mentioned that you're now sort of um, an operator, a communications director for all of the Smithsonian. Uh, how does this work? So I am section planning chief for my unit, which is the Freer Sackler within the Smithsonian. So we, as a unit, have decided to centralize all of our communication with our larger institution, the Smithsonian, and it all comes through me. So I am the primary, one of the primary emergency responders, not only for collections, but for any situation in my job as part of, is communication as section planning chief. So I, I get 20 or 30 emails an hour sometimes about the virus and four or five emails, you know, from the central a day, um, with just information to distribute to staff at the Freer Sackler. So it's just a lot of information and it's a lot of, um, calling through information and making sure that we're centralizing it because we also want to centralize our communication upward so that we're not, we're getting answers, um, and not overwhelming them on certain things. Um, wow. I know you guys at the Smithsonian um, are using the incident command system for that organization. So if if anybody out there is not familiar with the incident command system, it is um, a military FEMA adaptation that we've um, is kind of the best practice for emergency management. It's how um, we've sort of learned is is kind of the best way to communicate um and i I know the smithsonian for example they institute that when they um break when it is when the 
when it has been declared an emergency and they go into the, the formation. So um, I know it's something that a lot of us are not familiar with in the um, cultural heritage community, but now might be a good time to use this extra time to start learning about the incident command system and maybe what the lessons are, what you could take back. As Danielle was kind of mentioning, it's a really good way to sort of streamline communications. I know it's really easy in a disaster for things to kind of get a little bit crazy and everybody's talking to everybody and rumors get flying and that can easily make a response sort of crumble. So uh, the incident ICS incident command system is a really awesome way to, um, to communicate. And if that isn't something you're familiar with it, FEMA has online courses that are free and available on ICS. There's a really great book called, um, Instituting the Incident Command System at the Institutional Level by David Carmichael. It's a really awesome book geared specifically for people in cultural institutions. So, um, you know, you got a lot of time. Why don't we do some reading and some homework and, uh, again, learn what we can, Mm -hmm. how we can make our plans better um, in the future. Yeah. The other role I've taken on is a little bit of an informal social coordinator. I make sure that everyone has fun on Teams. (laughs) <laughs> nice. Good job for you, Danielle. Yeah. <laughs> I've been scheduling 4 30 um happy hour meetings. <laughs> like, let's just all talk for 30 minutes, but it's just it's just like downtime. It's not and I don't like expect work to get done. I just want to see where everybody is and whose mama is okay and all that stuff. So you're several drinks in by now. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't have one today. I I held, I, I held out. <laughs> And it's also only 7.15 for me, so. <laughs> got it, got it. So we actually had a, a, a few questions here coming in through the chat. Um, one was the, the concern for personnel who have been let go. So maybe you can't actually reassign uh, jobs to people and maybe you actually have to let some go. Is, uh, is, that, is that a reality for several of you? It is not for us yet. I will say that, um, interestingly enough, although they've, they have put on a hiring freeze, which, which sort of makes sense. I mean, who can start a new job right now? Um, but but no, my museum so far has agreed that all salaried staff will be paid through May 15th. And hourly staff, whether you're working or not, will be paid through May 17th. So based on whatever your work schedule would be. Um, They've done that based on the senior staff taking a pay cut right now. And on a couple of board members starting a COVID-19 recovery fund where they are on a board level fundraising to help Uh, meet the gap in our operating expenses you know so we were this is a like a lot of people our busiest time of year we rely a lot on group sales and ticket sales just to feed the machine that is operations and so we're losing out on a lot of that revenue but so far they've basically guaranteed to pay all of us for two months Um, if we're closed after that I think that that will probably be the point of layoffs Um, that I know we've all probably seen some headlines about um Carnegie and Melissa, you had mentioned somebody else that had just announced some uh, museums in Minnesota for laying off. Yeah. Yeah. And um, another, we had another question about um, activities for interns that they can do remotely. Uh, I guess Elise spoke a little bit about that. Does anyone else have anything that they want to contribute? I can speak up a little bit. Um, So we have a couple of interns currently on staff. They are currently, we've developed telework projects for them. So they went from processing archival materials to doing research. Um, We have an intern that's, we're having to do um, copyright research. So they can do that from, we can, we're figuring out how to make that a telework situation where they can do research we're looking for, you know, who owns the copyright of these works. So it's it's a project that it can actually do from home. Um, we have other interns that just cannot accommodate, and we've rescheduled when we can, and we're trying to make as many of them work as possible. Yeah. Can you, I mean, is it even possible to cut loose an intern in a situation like this? Um, I don't know what the terms are. It's probably state by state, but... Uh, yeah. 
Um, probably depends if they're like through a university also or what the internship program is exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I can speak to that a bit because my intern is actually, uh, she's in the museum studies program and she's taking the internship for credit. So I have to find something for her to do until mid April when our semester will be over. Um, so I've decided with her because her um, knowledge of collections management is fairly limited. I've changed the internship into a mini course where each Friday discussing, I'll send her a list of references to read and we're discussing the references and I'm asking her questions. She's asking me questions. So um, we're, we're doing it in that way rather than me trying to send her work to do because she's really not, at this point, not very independent with the work. That's great. You can kind of turn it into a mentorship. We're also working with um, our intern coordinator to do more informational interviews. So we're setting up meetings with other staff members to talk to all the interns. Um, so anyone who can join, I think next Friday, I get to be interviewed by any intern that wants to interview me. Um, so that'll be fun. So... Um, a lot of people um, are required to actually be visiting their institutions. Uh, is, is everybody doing checkups uh, as we go? There's a, a question about this. Um, and, uh, you know, in it, A, are you doing it? And B, what does it look like? And is this part of your, um, your disaster preparedness um, continuity of operations planning? So for us, because of the way our hurricane plan works, um, I'm one of the people on staff is like the major person in, part of, in charge of collections that gets what they call a placard, which I get, which means that I can get back into the city um, if they were to shut it down for something like that. And so the way that we've kind of reworked it for this period of time is that I'm going to have access to the entire museum once a week through our security team. So they'll know I'm coming and I can walk through all of the galleries and take a look at all of the artifacts and just make sure that, you know, because um, the other thing that the operations team decided to do was to set everything to 75 degrees. Gulp, okay. 75 degrees uh, in South Louisiana <laughs> in certain time. And so I was like, okay, but we have to be on the lookout for issues of that the humidity is going to create within our galleries, within our storage, all of that. And so they agreed, you know, like, just like I would be able to come back after a hurricane and assess all that, I'm going to have access or somebody from my team is going to have access at least once a week. Um, I've also sent a list of things to security that they should look for, like particularly sensitive items. Um, because had I known, I probably would have pulled stuff before, but I didn't know until 11 o'clock on Friday when they were dismissing all staff at five that this was going to be the protocol. So it's a little bit too late. Um, but anyway, so I have access once a week. I'll get to go through all of our storage areas and all of the gallery areas. And then if I see an issue, I'll be able to sort of call it and say, okay, I need my team. We need to deinstall this exhibition case or, you know, whatever it might be. So that's one of those things that is sort of um, um, an addendum essentially to what our hurricane plan would be. Um, but seems to be fine. Cause then, you know, as far as security and everything's concerned in there, we have, you know, like five buildings. So it's a big deal for security to like unarm it, get the lights on, let me in, do a, you know, and then do their protocol to, to basically shut it all down again. So, um, for them to agree to let me in to do that was, was, was really good. And the, my vice president was really supportive of that to say collections needs in, they need to be able to assess their space and all the stuff. Cause that's the biggest concern too, right? Is what, are, you know, if we just don't do anything, we could come back to a real disaster on the flip side of it. Collections disaster. How's, I, I know uh, other major institutions here in New York are just allowing say conservators to go through with the, with the security staff who have also been cut back. But um, I mean, is it uh, is this something that is written into your plans? I mean, did you know that if something happens, that uh, X person will be the person checking up on things? For hurricane stuff, I did know that I would be that person, um, and so it sort of made sense just to make me the person in this instance. I think just 
the geography of the thing, like a lot of people who live in, in larger cities where people commute, I don't live that far away from the museum. So for me to drive 10 minutes to get there versus say like my collections manager who lives 90 minutes away, like that would be a lot to ask her to go in to do that for was probably going to take an hour, maybe hour and a half total. So driving three hours to do 90 minutes of work doesn't seem like the best mm-hmm. use of her time when she can be home cleaning data, updating database records, you know, doing those kinds of things. And it's going to take me 10 minutes back, you know, 10 minutes there, 10 minutes back to do it. So, but I, as part of the hurricane protocol, my position, whether it was me or somebody else in it would be the person who gets to come back and be a first responder essentially for any disaster that might've happened, whether it was, um, you know, a flood or a roof or a hurricane issue or whatever. Anyone else? We have a number of um, some of the directors in, uh, in our science division are all uh, within walking distance. And so that's really easy. So it not only puts it at a certain leadership level of folks who are able to go back and that's easier to convince, um, you know, our senior leadership that, that those are the essential personnel, but a lot of us are within walking distance. And so we're sort of trading off. Um, and it's funny, we were actually talking about a coup plan just, gosh, a short time ago. Um, and I was called into those meetings because it was an you know, it, it's a nice thing when you're at an institution that immediately recognizes that the collections being one of the most important assets of an institution are one of the things that most most have to be protected and they are essential. And so um, we had just started those conversations to really get that up and running. Um, and so this is a perfect opportunity for us to learn from in order to get that in place. But yeah, so our security is going to be doing their regular walkthroughs, but um, nobody seems at all... Um, in any way affected or that they think it's not necessary for collection staff to also be there a little bit as, but we're seriously limiting the number of times we're there and everything else. We're just able to check for pests and other things, you know, that our security staff are not going to be as attuned to, to looking for. Um, we're already seeing a, a surge in mice in our institution mm-hmm. largely because um, not that they weren't there before, but they're coming out to look for food sources because all of the people <laughs> leaving crumbs around the building aren't there anymore. And so we have, we may be trapping a lot more mice because of it. So um, we've just had little changes like that, that collections folks are sort of tuned into. Um, but of course, we're working in, in concert with our security staff. Yeah, I think similar for us, that was a one or two of the things that our security personnel who felt comfortable walking through the galleries and let us know if they thought something had like molded or fallen off a mount or whatever. But when it came to like things like pests, Mice, they might, or rats, they might notice, but, you know, they would not be attuned to some of the other things that are more, you know, like our pest traps, you know, the little things that we have all over to look into those. And, um, you know, like, did that look like that before? I don't know, kind of thing. So I think that they were, um, I think they, I think our security staff was a little relieved that it wasn't going to fall on their shoulders to have to notice every single little thing that they're like, okay, collections is going to be here once a week. So you know, we'll look for the big stuff, but otherwise they're going to come check too. And I think that they, they got enough to worry about. We have, I think um, we're, we're approaching it in a, in, a, in a very similar way is that, you know, we've got our security staff that provide that blanket overview daily check. Um, and then we've got, um, we're lucky enough to have a, um, one of our security staff who's also functioning as a, in art preparation is going to be there, uh, to do that, uh, that, that more, yeah, in, intimate or more focused look on the collections and I'll be going into the space uh, once a week um, just to have to, to do just that functionality that, that we're talking about. So um, yeah, I think it's when we're talking about essential staff and um, being within a university, you know, we had to have that discussion and that and identify those people early on. And I think to, you know, to John's uh, earlier point about planning, you know, I think that um, having having those folks identified as key personnel early on in, in our disaster planning was was really important. So it was, you know, just a, a more or less an ad- adaptation of, of the current plan. But we'll see how it goes. But that's that's our our stance right now. We're doing much the same. Oh, oh I was going to say we're doing much the same as the only collection at the museum um, and pest manager. Um, it all falls in my shoulders pretty much. Um, and so I've been going in once a week and, um, I was out of town when they issued the order that all staff would work, um, from home. Um, but I went in, um, immediately upon getting back to Charlotte because I realized we had a, we have a work of art that 
um, I don't know if you guys can hear me, but we have a work of art that um, was electronic and on a timer, set on to come on a timer when we were open to the public, but it also has a water feature um, uh, with fountains. And we were concerned that it would grow mold and bacteria and all that. So I had to um, immediately drain the pool and, and cut the circuit breaker because nobody was going to be in to watch it. Um, and then we're just following those regular protocols. I'm going in once a week. Um, our maintenance and facilities people are on, on um, site daily, similar. We have in our disaster plan, we have essential personnel and we update that every year, if not more often, if we need to do it more often, we do. But um, the university has asked us to supply a list of essential personnel to update it. And um, all the collections managers here will be put on the list. And we are allowed to come into our offices as often or as little as we want. So, um, and part of my issue is that my internet speed at home isn't very good. So I've had to come into my office quite a bit to do some of these meetings and to work on database um, and other tasks that I cannot do at home. So um, we don't have the same sorts of issues as other places because we can keep a check on the collections, including our offsite facilities. As a little tidbit, also, while I'm keeping an eye out for pests we don't want, I'm also suddenly in charge of keeping the pests we do want alive. So I'm in charge of our domestic colony. Um, so I have, you know, thousands of little pets that are relying on me and they get fed and watered regularly now. So <laughs> you have to find them a random bird or something. <laughs> We've got plenty. <laughs> it's actually fascinating. So I have a humanities background, but obviously we're working at a history institution. And so, yeah, so I'm learning about the, the dermisterium and, and how to keep that rolling along. Because needless to say, they are some of our workhorse volunteers. And uh, yeah, they don't really know a difference. They just continue to eat, meat, meat. So um, we're trying to keep them happy. So in a kind of odd turn of events, I think some of you have probably seen how like, you know, the dolphins have returned to the canals of Venice and the deer have returned to the streets of Japan. And basically without anybody on Bourbon Street, the rats have taken over. Mm. It's bad. And so there is a huge concern on our end about rodents because uh, like Melissa said, like the mice, they're picking up people's crumbs, but also the people tend just the sheer traffic, the number of people keep them away. And that's not happening on Bourbon Street. And so, um, or the French Quarter really in general. And so we're about nine, 10 blocks away from that overall. And you know, rodents just in general are a problem in New Orleans. And so that's one of the things that we're not going to have anything for them to eat either, right? Because all the easy stuff, all the stuff in the dumpsters, all the stuff that would just be kind of naturally like out in the alley and stuff is not going to be there because we don't have any events and we're not. And so I'm like, oh, they're going to get them. So <laughs> we have to start like being on the lookout for those. It's, yeah, I'm like, really? Dolphins and we get rats. Tony, there is a movie script in that that is so. <laughs> We have, uh, I'm going to riff off of something that Tony mentioned earlier. Uh, we did have a question about um, donating uh, personal protective uh, equipment uh, and how much to, to keep behind, if any. Um, we, we heard from Tony on that. Anyone else doing donations and how much are you keeping behind if you are? Um, I was put in charge of uh, our donations from our institution. We're a, you know, a, a a large museum overall, as far as collections go for a natural history institution, we're not enormously huge, but, um, you know, it just so happens that, you know, our fiscal year and, and calendar year are the same. So we had just, you know, done our sort of year end purchasing of gloves and things. I mean, we have tens of thousands of nitro gloves and N95 respirators and all sorts of things. And um, for my institution, you know, I'm not rating our emergency bins. Um, and I'm certainly, you know, it, Open product is not needed in most instances in most hospitals at this point. So between that, that's what we're banking on. But we all agreed, um, all the directors in the science division and across the museum, our, our need is not as great. And when we reopen, if we're a little bit short on gloves, but we could help, then that was the case we made. And that may not be the decision that every museum makes. Um, you know, and our institution is also looking at, um, a little bit unrelated, but back to some of the, the questions about budgeting. You know, for us, a big part of our, our income is also based off of something called the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, which is a seven-county 
um, sales tax, basically. And we get an enormous part of our budget from that sales tax. And so, you know, we're going to be seeing budget implications even after the doors and the open and the crowds come back. Um, so we're trying to look at that. But ultimately, we just decided in this instance, we're keeping all of the supplies in our emergency bins for now. And um, our open product is, you know, significant enough. Um, I've had some folks talk about with certain collections, could we, you know, go back to using some cotton gloves for certain instances? Are there ways that we can limit the types of handling that we're doing in certain instances? Um, you know, so we know we're not handling as many historical specimens. So we're kind of talking about all of that right now. But ultimately, because we did have such, a, a, at least for a museum, it seemed like a really large donation to be able to make that we decided to go ahead and do it. Anyone else donating? Seems to be we're, we're donating collection by collection. So for example, I don't have that many. Each collection has to buy their own PPE. I don't have a lot, so I'm not giving any, but for example, our ichthyology department is donating quite a bit because they have a huge supply of gloves, say. So it's it's by by collection. And the university is um organizing all of that, the collections, it, you know, who's collecting the PPE to give away and where it's going to go and all that. So we just have to take it where they want us to take it. I got to say, everybody, uh, if you're if you're not following along uh, on online, there's a really lively discussion going on in the chat portion of of this. So I do encourage you to to uh, to look in there. There's some good people uh, posting resources. So that is something to also reference as you go through this. Um, I'm, I'm taken aback by how much response we're getting. So um, there was another good question about uh, how we're keeping staff like prep staff and other staff who are more uh, reliant on physical work. What, what are they doing now? Have they been uh, assigned new jobs? Are they going in? Are they doing some of your... Um, your checkups, uh, what, what kind of jobs are they getting? I can speak to that. Um, our, our staff are really focusing on a lot of the background work that, um, that they ordinarily don't have the opportunity to do. So a lot in the way of uh, assisting with digitization, um, ex exhibition planning, uh, way out, <laughs> um, uh, just sort of looking at, uh, you know, providing um, a sense and digital platforms for us to plan on. Um, just taking the opportunity to um, update policies and procedures, um, think differently about space allocation. So really encouraging them to do, um, you know, all the all the things that they ordinarily wouldn't have the opportunity to do. Um, so there's a there's ample work on the digital front, and you know we had um, uh, quite a bit of uh, a heads up on the university side. We started preparing pretty pretty early in this, um, and so we were able to establish a lot of the um, the resources and, and access to all those digital um, uh, information and things that they need to do the work in advance. So I think that's uh, that's a, a, a large amount of time that they're that they're devoting to that. I can't. I, Danielle, you want to say something? I can't hear you. Are, are you on mute? No. Okay. Now try it. <laughs> Too many mute buttons. Um, I have staff doing similar things. So we happened to got, we actually got very lucky. Um, our data migration for our archival database happened last week. So we are cleaning data um, and we do have access to it. Um, I have staff doing cleanup in our digital asset management system. We just had a volunteer finish scanning all of our past event photography. So my photographers are not taking photos. They are actually doing the metadata for all of that photography. So we are lucky in the fact that we had, in a way, a backlog of data projects that we could work mm -hmm. on. We are also actively looking for projects that we can crowdsource to other staff members. So all of those artists that we don't have date, birth, and death dates for, we're looking at putting together a spreadsheet with some what we know about them and seeing if people can go on the internet and help us figure out when they died. So um, we're looking at projects along that line, research projects that people can do along with policies and procedures because they can always be updated. So, yeah, it's a good time to do policies and procedures. <laughs> and disaster plans. A coup and plan. disaster plans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I work at a conservation lab. So we have a lot of conservators there who 
what are, I mean, what are they going to do? Bring the, the lab a hood home and, and do conservation treatment. So something that they've been working on, and my, my job's a little bit different. I kind of always work remote. So I was, I was prepared for this for a long time, but um, the conservators are taking this time to uh, dive into some of those deeper research projects and, um, you know, do a little bit more of that on their own with the idea being that after all of this, they will have uh, something to present at conferences. They'll have, you know, something to show for, for this time that they, they were able to dive in deep to, to some kind of research that they've been wanting to do. And I think they've been, enjoy at least on our team's chat, it seems like people are, are enjoying that and sharing all sorts of little tid tidbits with everybody about what they're learning. Um, so it, it seems like that's at least kept them busy for the first week. I'm not sure how much longer um, it will last, but. I think amongst our research scientists, I just got the note that in the last week and a half, like four papers have been submitted. So um, <laughs> researchers are certainly excited to, to have some of the focus time. There's also, I know, and I'm sure it's happening everywhere, but I know there are science institutions, mine included, that are very much looking at some of the um, uh, community science uh, platforms and crowdsourcing of, of data and cleanup and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I don't know how quickly those projects really realistically get turned around. I mean, there are bigger institutions that already have those platforms up and available, um, but we're definitely partnering with them and trying to see what's available on that front as well, which of course would be not only staff, but others as well. Um, we did just have a department. This is interesting. We were remodeling our um, a retail shop recently. And so we had retail shop workers that didn't have things to do. And so they were trained on cleaning up a bunch of images in one of our uh, collections departments, um, which was great. And it means that they had those protocols kind of down. It also means that a lot of the photos got cleaned up during that time. So um, it was kind of the perfect storm of, of additional folks. But, you know, even, even people without a lot of collections background, there are a lot of things that they can help us with. I mean, cropping and renaming photos so we can upload them in bulk to the database, they killed it, they absolutely killed it. So one of the things that we have um, done for the World War II Museum is a sort of campaign called Our Work Continues, which is just to try and really push a ton of content online through our blog and articles and even interviews. You know, some of our historians are being quoted in USA Today um, with parallels about Pearl Harbor and what life was like in World War II and what's going on now and rationing and mentality and all that. And then just doing a lot of um, blog posts and video posts about World War II, just to, in some ways to stay relevant to our audience. You know, it's the people don't kind of like, forget who you are while they're all cooped up. And, you know, so we've just tried to ensure that we're not having any kind of radio silence, but in some ways it's meant that people who wouldn't normally get to write or do video stuff for the museum are getting the opportunity to, because they really want a really broad swath of people and topics and things. And so like, you know, um, like, you know, my collections manager who normally wouldn't do that kind of thing because it would fall into the purview of what curators and historians and some of the researchers do, you know, we'll probably get a chance to write a couple of things and put them online about collections that, you know, she spends, or like our archivists, you know, they spend weeks cataloging these collections. They, at the end of it, they probably know them better, Samantha has a visitor, than anyone else. We all and got so, distracted. <laughs> yeah, and so it's kind of nice in some ways for them to maybe get to, to put it on view to the public from a different perspective, right? So not necessarily from the historian slash curator perspective, but from the collections manager perspective. So I'm kind of looking forward for some of those opportunities for them to be able to sort of showcase our work, their work, but also keep the mission of the museum in mind as they're moving forward in some of those tasks. Well, and I'll, I'll add that, you know, as a parent to great 10 year olds. Um, I, the online museum tours that people have been putting in the interviews yeah. and stuff are a super good distraction <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon. when I'm like, let's put away the Minecraft for five minutes, please. And let's look at something. And even like the, the places like the shed aquarium, letting the penguins like run through oh, the hall, yeah. like that was like fascinating to everyone. So I think some of the products that are going to come out of this are going to be really, um, are good ways to keep the, our institutions in the forefront of people's minds. Yeah, I think it's going to challenge a lot of us to really rethink how we engage with audiences. I think that, like, mm -hmm. we have this idea about what people watch and do and see, 
And I think, I mean, it challenges us as people who are stuck at home, um, but some of it might stick, right? Like the things that you look to do to fill your time, um, you know, will change and maybe hopefully museums will be a bigger part of where it is so that you go to seek some of those resources for entertainment, um, to entertain your kids or just to have a break from the news and, you know, whatever else is going on. I think it's really interesting also because it's making museums become kind of more accessible in a lot. Please ignore this cat. Um, <laughs> more sort of accessible in a way that they haven't been before. And I do hope some of that sticks. You know, we're making it so that there, anyone can go to it at any time. So I know that's been, you know, sort of an issue in the field in general is that diversity, inclusion, accessibility sort of. Um, conversation and this in a way is kind of forcing us to move forward in that direction so um, if we're looking for silver linings I am hoping that's one um, that we all sort of are approaching our programming and even collections how can we make you know the work we do more accessible and mm -hmm. um, you know be out there a little bit more so you know, I'm, I've been pretty good at looking at silver linings um, lately. So that's the one I'm trying to look at here. Yeah, we're a very small museum. And just before this, the whole thing hit, we had started a little feature we were calling Found in Collections, where staff members were picking something they liked out of the collection, posting a few pictures on our Facebook page with a short description of it. And then we were moving those one by one into an exhibit case in the gallery. Well, since the museum is now closed, we've been trying to kind of ramp that up and do at least one new thing a week. And those have drawn a, for a small museum, they have drawn a remarkable audience on Facebook. And and so people are really looking forward each week to seeing what new object we turn up. And it's entirely at random. It's whatever people have that are working in the collection have stumbled onto that they really like. So we're, it's, it's mostly um, an uh, earth and mineral science museum. So we've had things like uh, as, uh, natural asbestos was the last one, I think, that went up. And, but any, in anything anyone finds that is of interest. And we're trying to just keep our name in front of the public while mm -hmm. we're, our gallery is actually closed. Um, the Cowboy Museum seems to be beating yes. everybody. Yes, they're winning. They're hashtag on winning. If you are not on Twitter, Amazing. get on Twitter for the first time in your life and go and check that place out. They basically gave a security guard, uh, an older gentleman, I'm guessing, control of Twitter and him trying to do hashtags and just commute. It's just like the best, kindest, most pure thing right now. So go check yeah, that out. It's all the stuff that interests him and his perspective on it. It's great. Oh, it's great. So my, my husband is from Oklahoma and he's been to that museum um, a lot as a child growing up. So we've been, we've been extra loving it. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, I mean, we we technically have ten minutes left, but uh, if if you guys are willing to stay on, we have a we have a lot of people uh, asking questions uh, still. But uh, I, I do want to address one big topic that uh, there's a pretty good discussion on the chat uh, about, which is loans and um, mostly outgoing. But I think we should uh, and let's talk about that first. But uh, also hit in incoming if uh, if so. Uh, but uh, anyone have uh, some outgoing loan uh, shenanigans. What are you guys doing about that? Just shifting schedules? So I can speak to that a little bit. We are shifting schedules. We are working with everyone, all of our borrowers to secure the pieces. Most of our borrowers are closed. Um, even our international borrowers are closed currently. So we are working with them to cover the light sensitive materials. Um, we're an Asian art museum, so most of our materials are light sensitive. So we are working on that, and then we're working on basically updating loan agreements so that we can work with whatever schedule. Most of our lenders, our borrowers happen to be extending their shows. Um, so if they had two months left on the run of the show, they're asking after they open, can they have two months? And long as they've, long as we've been able to cover it, we've been working with them to make sure that we can extend it. Um, partly because we also don't, we can't go pick it up, so it's better that it's safe on the wall. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think on our end, it's just, uh, you know, we've got a number of, of, uh, of things that are on their way out. And then we've certainly got a lot of objects inside the museum. So I think for now, I mean, the ground shifts so, so quickly um, that to be able to plan with any firm sense is, is really not possible at this point in time. So um, really, I think the communication is the name of the game and just being, um, you know, 
over communicative and reaching out to lenders, letting them know the status. I know that when we were um, rolling out our closures in an iterative way and how we were going to respond and what we were going to do, um, we just took um, just the additional steps in reaching out to each lender and letting them know what's happening. And, you know, they were all, everybody's in the same boat. So in essence, they were just um, appreciative of the effort of, of understanding where things are at. Um, and then when we have a better sense of how we're going to move forward, we'll, we'll uh, you know, adjust the loan agreements and, and those sorts of things accordingly. And the other thing that um, I've been thinking about quite a bit is just on the business continuity plan, you know, emerging from the situation, um, you know, what, what that looks like. You know, we were talking a lot about silver linings and, and things that will be positive coming out of this. And I think I totally agree. I think there's going to be a lot of ways that um, this changes and, and forces us to adapt in different ways that we're not even conceiving of. But I think just on a lot of pragmatic sense, on, on a pra- pragmatic levels, um, things that I'm wondering about and, and some of them worried about is just, um, you know, how, how things will um, be as far as, um, you know, arranging for shipping. I mean, it's, it might, it's going to be a, an issue, I think, of some, to some level of, of supply and demand. Um, I think there's going to be a huge uh, glut need uh, for um, moving objects and artifacts in and around the world. And I think that, um, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about um, and just uh, planning for as much as I can, but just right now I'm thinking about it and just wondering if anybody else has any thoughts about that. Mm. I mean, do you think that people, I mean, there's some, there's a part of me that thinks that there's going to be less demand. It's like, Oh, this is a huge risk. And at least it's going to take a while to, sort of fade back to the levels that we were um, that we were at before. I, I, I'm kind of wondering if people will be more selective about what they send. Um, I think I agree with you. I think in the, in the long term, I think just in the, in the short term, I think a lot of, I would imagine maybe not, maybe I'm wrong that, um, you know, the, there's, this will certainly force people to think differently about, uh, about lending their objects. But um, I just think in the short term, just, you know, with all this, the the inevitable shifts in schedule, I think there's just going to be a lot of work on that front, um, and just a lot of pent up demand. Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but well, Mark, I've thought about that. Oh, go ahead, John. Say, that's something I've been thinking about. You know, we work a lot as a small museum. We work a lot with contractors and and vendors and things. And and with mm-hmm. all of the museums shut down and everybody. Um, not doing anything when we all come back online, it's not all going to be at once, but I feel like we're all going to be competing for the same services, the same Mm -hmm. people, um, the same resources. And that's one thing I've been trying to educate the administration on is it's not just our schedule that we have to take into account. It's everybody that we work with. Um, because they're in the same boat and we'll have to accommodate their schedules. And, and so, um, that's just something that's been on my mind. Like if we don't get our schedule together, are we going to lose out on being able to hire the people that we need and want because somebody else hired them first? Just a thought. Yep. There's so much, there's only so much you can hire of me that you can hire. Uh, all of my stuff's canceled now, but, uh, you know, I will be available. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) Yeah, I think on my end of it too, it's that, you know, right now all of my exhibits that are out or loans that are out are are safely out and going to be held at the places that they are, you know, basically extending everything a few months. But then I'm kind of with Shannon and Mark in the sense that like, then there's going to come a point where all of it opens back up and everything that didn't happen for two months or three months is all going to have to happen at once. And then I think, and then I think my concern is that once that glut is over or like once that sort of like all that pent up demand is kind of over, then all of us who have to like had to lay off staff or had shrinking budgets or aren't sending anything out or have decided to delay other exhibitions or other loans then there's going to be this depth of nothingness for the shippers and the art handlers and that stuff too, where now everybody's cut their budgets and they've brought everything home and they're not going to do anything else for a while until they reassess. And I'm a little bit worried about what that period is like. That's sort of like, we'll get back and we'll get ramped back up, but then there will be this, it'll be slow. And I'm, that's my concern is how we continue to maintain like the momentum that we had as far as like on my end of it, because our traveling shows are a way that we 
get our mission and vision and artifacts out there to people who would never be able to come to our museum to see them, like a lot of us, right? So that is a connection that we'll be losing out on if we aren't able to continue to book our exhibits or if we decide that they're just a little too expensive right now and we just need to hold them until we're ready to like do the, do the expense again. Everyone be very, very nice to your shippers coming up. They will be slammed and they will be all <laughs> keeping us in the game. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a good discussion about this uh, happening on, on the, the chat portion here. So you guys should definitely go back to it. Um, uh, there is, uh, let's see. Are you guys good for a little bit more? Um, mm-hmm. There is a good question about just the psychological aspect of things, pe- keeping people motivated, keeping people from paralysis, just from the general anxiety going on, especially if it's someone that, say, has to go out and, and be around um, around people or have, you know, potentially more exposure. Uh, maybe they're, you know, going in and working with security or whatever. But uh, how are you keeping uh, morale up and keeping people from just being completely scared and paralyzed? I mean, that also goes for yourself, too, because, you know, we're human, too. Well, Danielle and her designated fun <laughs> at meetings. So one thing I've been making sure... Um, so obviously I'm president of ARC, so I am actually used to managing 15 people via email, um, as in the board. Um, so transitioning to managing my in-person staff, also around the same size, um, has reinforced the fact that I need to keep a normal schedule. Um, and I need to make sure that my staff keeps a normal schedule. I make sure that they know I take lunch. I make sure my staff takes lunch. I make sure they know I sign off at my normal time so that they can sign off on that normal time. I keep my meetings with them. We've switched them all to teams so that I can see them. Um, Mm -hmm. On last Tuesday, a week ago, we had our departmental meeting just like normal. Um, It took us a little while to get started, and I purposely was like, hey, it's going to take us 15, 30 minutes of this meeting to get everyone on. But it's good because we can all talk during that time. Um, So keeping them social, I think, is important. But also, you know, hey, one of my collections managers had his daughter in the room and we're all like, can we see her? And we just embraced it. You know, like Samantha with her cat. I was like, hey, if I get to see your dog, too. And he's like, here, give me a second. He picks up his dog. It's great. We've been embracing some of the chaos around it and having fun with it. Um, You know, we we started a social channel on Teams. Um, People have been posting their pets. Um, we're trying to think of, you know, hey, we're going to have a contest. Who has the best coffee mug? You know, we're going to do kind of some of those really, they're silly, but they're just kind of fun because it gives you something to check in during the day. And those are minor things that you can, that are easily done that make some difference in people just to keep them laughing. Um, so we're trying to focus on those little things we can do. Plus, we have an employee assistance program and we make sure that is prominently displayed on teams um, so that if people need it, that they know it's there. So making sure that the resources we do have are accessible and people know about them. Is that financial assistance? Is that what that is? Employee assistance program. Um, it's counseling, basically. If okay. someone needs to talk to somebody, they can get a counselor. I think the fact that this is kind of like the new normal, even for the, like, I tend to work remotely, right? I live on an island. So a lot of my projects are like this, where people see this view. But I think the fact that I've had to let go of the fact that I can always tend to look professional and good to go, because again, I got co-hosts sometimes that pop up randomly. And I've just had to learn to kind of let that go a little bit and be like, some crazy times. We're all just kind of working with it. And that's been helpful to me a lot to know that other people are out there juggling the, even if you don't have kids, juggling the random animal visits or just the whatever's happening in the background and knowing we're all doing our best, I think has been incredibly important to all of us. Really human. It's been fun to have my husband teaching trumpet in the background. (laughs) 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 People are like, what's that noise? I'm like, that's just my husband. He's playing trumpet. trumpet. (laughs) (laughs) I forget. And it's expected. You live in New Orleans, right? <laughs> he's a music teacher. This is what he's going to do for a while. <laughs> that just happens regularly. Tony is just outside. There's a band. <laughs> it actually us. does. There's like another, there's a tuba player in my neighborhood and he is loud. <laughs> yeah, I've not had to do it this time, but in prior uh, experiences at another museum I used to work in, I wound up being 
the person in charge. And one thing that I think is important is to stay abreast of the rumors and be able to help the staff start out rumor from fact. And there's a lot of rumor going around this mm -hmm. time. I think just having someone that they know they can rely on, which means you have to spend a lot of time on the internet, making sure that the informa what information you know to be correct and know to be incorrect and can, can sort all that out is, is, is important. Well, and at some point, I, I had to give myself permission to realize that a week and a half in, I'm not even remotely close to perfect at this yet, right? Like, I had an afternoon last week that I just totally lost my... I'm censoring myself. For those <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, you know, again, and for people watching, ARCS had a, a board meeting, which is why a lot of us were like, we were out of town when this happened. Um so coming back, I mean, and then all of a sudden I'm thrown into all these other things and there's extra things and I'm becoming a Zoom Pro user, which I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means. And all of that and realizing, and I have I have two young coworkers at home, two young elementary school kids. So like figure out their normal, which is just wrecked as completely as well. And they haven't started the online learning. And now after today, I'm terrified of their online learning and my Zoom meetings are completely going to compete for bandwidth. So this is all new. It's new for everybody. And something that I've been incredibly impressed with. I mean, who, I mean, talking about the loans and everything else. And in a science museum, it's a little bit different because honestly, we had to be like, stop FedExing the bugs back to us, right? Um, but we really, who thought that collection staff and registrars could be so damn flexible? Clutches, <laughs> 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 right? This is new to all of us. Like we, we're looking to our president for answers and they're like, as soon as we have one, we'll let you know. And everyone's making do. And I I have to remind myself still, we're, you know, I got thrown into PPE. So for two days, I was at the museum collecting, you know, 70,000 gloves from all over the building. And I wasn't checking email and everyone else was at home just emailing. So we're all still trying to fall into what our new normal is. And the reality is it changes every hour. You know, we no more than got off a call with our, our president and the mayor announced you know, a stay-at-home measure that changed everything that had just been agreed upon. So um, I think something that's really just given me, I've always considered myself a very pragmatic collections person and sort of able to adjust on the fly and, you know, best practices are great, but let's do what's really the best in this situation for what we have. And I think we're all finding out that we can do that. And I, I think it's going to make the profession and the sort of the, the outlook for the profession even stronger. I really do you know, less black and white and a lot more like, what is the reality of your situation? How do you make the best of it? Keeping best practice in mind and always shooting for that, but knowing that it's so often that we have so many institutions that are either small or budget strapped or people strapped or whatever else. Um, and being able to make do in these types of situations is what makes us really good at our jobs. Listen, I think that was the most popular comment in your little speech on, in the comments is like on fire right now. So good job. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, if I knew how to YouTube at the same time I was doing good this, job. I could have, but <laughs> I'm still now, learning. Related to what Melissa said, too, this is the time when we need to remind ourselves that other people may not know what we do, but what we do is really important. And, you know, in, in 10 years and 50 years and 100 years, these collections are going to still be around in good shape or bad shape because of what we did. And no one's going to remember us or what we did, but what we do is an important job. That's why we do it. And I think, you know, you need to remind yourself that it is important and go for it because you know that it's important. Maybe no one else does, but we do. Yeah, that's one of the things I've tried to emphasize to my staff is that even though they're not there hands-on how they're used to being, that the projects that we're working on are still really important and that in some ways it's sort of like, you know, like the opportunity to clean data on this level is something that we would never have if we were in the office every day. So to take the time to do it is actually, you know, it'll be kind of refreshing to be able to come back to a database that's a lot cleaner or going to be a lot cleaner when we upload all of it than it was before. And not to feel like you're just endlessly looking for commas or, you know, like, it, you know, mm, is that really the right term for that? Like no, that it's all worth it in all the end. The mistakes put in there by the prep staff. Come on. <laughs> all those curators who don't know how to catalog properly. Right. Yeah, well, that's it. So, um, 
I, uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with the amount of chat that's uh, been going on here. And uh, it's, it's a lot of really good stuff. So I definitely encourage everybody to go back and read it. A lot of stuff, a lot of great compliments for everybody, uh, including your cat, Samantha. And um, so everybody's really enjoying this. So Samantha, what's your cat's name? That one's Pearl. <laughs> and you have another one? Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't show his face, but <laughs> that one's Simon. He he's facing. Well it wasn't Pearl's face we were seeing. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that side was nice too. <laughs> See, it is like Bourbon Street, right? Yeah, she has been making her way into every single conference call I've had this week. So she's kind of a celebrity, just <laughs> Well, we can, we are so blessed. We're, yeah, happy to be in the crowd. So does anyone have any final thoughts, words of wisdom, uh, any final questions from our listeners out there, people following along? Including Pearl, as someone (laughs) chimed in? (laughs) No, I would just, I would just encourage people if they do to use the ARCS forum. Um, We all read that regularly and we're, I mean, I'll speak for myself and for everybody else here. We're always happy to continue to answer questions or if you have questions for us that are more specific to any of our institutions, uh, email Robin, ARCS uh, info. ARCS info. Say it again. Info at (laughs) arcsinfo.org. That one. And uh, she'll connect us and we'll be happy to help. I think we're realizing that this chat is wildly successful, I'll just say. So, um, and I think um, we'll be diving into some of these topics maybe for other chats. And I think it's a good way to keep people connected too, just across the country. Because I mean, we got all the way from me down in the islands to Melissa, Denver, to, you know what I mean? Tony in New Orleans to Danielle. You know, we have people from across the country and they'll probably be rotating faces coming through too, which I think- This is one of those few times when all of us all over the country, every type of museum is facing the same kind of issues. Oh, I've been- yeah, I've been thinking that a lot because like a lot of people I think know that like I was displaced for a month when Irma came through. Like I was not home. And it was weird because everyone was just like, Irma wasn't that bad. And I was like, I disagree. Like I was like, Irma was not fun. Um, so but it's been very interesting for me to be like, we are all in this together, man. Like high school musical says, you know what I mean? Like this is kind of what in we're World War II. We're all in, in this World together. War II. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, they plagiarized, but still it's, um, it is interesting because everyone's, everyone's dealing with this. So I think it's great to see it. I think it's also because, um, there's nothing else to do. No offense, but like, there's no soccer games. There's no baseball games. There's no, I mean, like, we're like, oh, we're home. We might as well do this thing. So (laughs) there's only so many rewatchings of Great British Bake Off on Netflix, which is what I've been doing at night to chill out. (laughs) Like that you can do (laughs) just to be like, I need to come. started Watchmen. There you go. That's dystopian, but I like that. <laughs> like that's <laughs> Tulsa race riot stuff. So, or Animal Crossing. That's the other favorite one around our. Oh, I know Animal Crossing stuff. <laughs> but now I think I think we realize that we could we should do more of these. You know what I mean? Especially right now, while the iron is hot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, well, um, as as we said, if anyone has any follow up questions, uh, please either you know you can obviously hit uh, Robin and I up on Twitter, uh, Amanda as well, uh, bombard her with all of your disgruntled questions and we'll take the nice ones. Um, info at arcsinfo.org is always a great way to reach out to any of the board members. Uh, you know, that always gets redirected. Um, then, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to maybe addressing some more of these things in another, another edition. Again, of course, as always, we'll go ahead and send this out as a, as a podcast later this week. Uh, of course, you can subscribe to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And uh, with that, we'll sign off. Thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in online. And uh, thanks for uh, everyone for joining us on our panel. Cheers. 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 <laughs> thanks, all. Be safe. Turn this together. Stay healthy. All right. Go wash go your hands. Hand. 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 Hand.